Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, hey, this conversation is one that I have been excited to share for quite a while. And as you're going to hear in the conversation, we are going to be speaking today with Scott Hammer. And Scott is somebody who works for Striven, which is a software company that that provides ERP solutions for small businesses. And in particular, they have a software platform for our industry that's that's really, really popular. But Today, we are talking really specifically about sales, marketing, and how people make decisions. And I first met Scott a couple of years ago, and when we met, he was wearing a t-shirt that was a Striven t-shirt, but it looked like a Ramones t-shirt design. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, dude, me and this guy are going to get along really, really well. And so as I got to know him, I found out that this guy was a music aficionado. He came from the punk rock scene, similar to me, and there was just a lot of common ground that we had. Now, a little while ago, I was in New Jersey for a consulting engagement out there, and one night I got together for drinks with Dave Rettinger and then Scott Hammer. And as we sat there talking, we were just kind of riffing back and forth about software and Striven and Wi-Fi and the future of the industry and a lot of different things. And I asked Scott about his journey because he was an English teacher for over a decade before becoming the sales and marketing director at a software company. And you'd think that that's not exactly a one step leads to another kind of thing, but Scott laid out a story and a mindset that as soon as he finished talking, I was like, man, we got to do a podcast episode about this. And so there's a lot that we get into in this episode, but I think the thing that I would listen for as I was listening to this conversation is think about how Scott understands the way that decisions are made and think about the layers of depth that he's talking about when it comes to writing and speaking and rhetoric. Because if you can apply these things in your business, in your marketing, and in your sales, man, good things are going to come from it. This is an episode, like no joke, I would recommend listening to this one twice. I would get out a pen and paper because there is some gold here. I definitely have some thoughts to share at the end, but for now, I'll step out of the way so that you can listen to this conversation. Joining me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is the Director of Sales and Marketing at Striven. I'm here today with Scott Hammer. Scott, how you doing? Hey, Tim, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's great to chat with you over Zoom. We were just hanging out in person. I wish that we were doing this actually face-to-face. Me too. It's interesting because you're one of the few people that I talk to semi-regularly that I met in person first. A lot of people, it goes the opposite way these days. You, know, you meet them on Zoom, especially if they're halfway across the country. You meet them on Zoom and then you go to an event together. But you and I have kind of circled events for the past couple of years. And, yeah. and you know, as we got to know each other more, it's been, you know, this is actually maybe our first virtual meeting, which is kind of neat. I think it actually is. I think I think you're right about that. Yeah. 
so there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, Scott, but you know, from the time that I met you, I felt very connected to you just in our love of all things DIY and, and punk rock music. And, and I, I love how you have taken that approach to marketing and selling Striven. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you know, you're, you're in the software industry and you've, you've made this product that's serving the fireplace retailers. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about your journey because you did not come from a sales or a software background. And I'd love to hear about just your journey and your career. Sure. Um, so yeah, I didn't start in software or sales uh, or marketing, really. I started as an English teacher. That was my first career. I did that for about 12 years uh, and really loved that career and, and was good at it. You know, I remember a time when I, I thought to myself, I want a job where I can just talk about books all day. And when I was in college, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did. Um, but, you know, you get to a point where you wonder what what else can you do? What else is out there? And I think in a, in a profession like education, which requires a lot of dedication. It requires dedication to a singular thing. And you have to be committed to doing that thing. So for me, for the next 30 years of my career, however much longer it's going to be, I was going to make a, a pact with myself that, you know, you have to be all in on this because like anything else with, with teaching, especially if you're not passionate about it, then you're, you're not serving your students. You're not really serving yourself. You're, you're, you're not doing anything particularly useful. Uh, you've got to find your passion. And uh, it was my passion for, for a long time and, then, and still always is. But I think what I do now actually has a lot of resonance with what I did as a teacher. So, so I really do. A lot of people from the outside will see it as, wow, that's a really hard turn. You know, it's a completely different industry. And, and it is, but a lot of the, the kind of skills that I exercise every day are very similar to what I used to do in the classroom. You know, it's funny, as, as you say this, I'm reminded of, of something that me and Matt Bradley have talked about a lot. And you've met Matt before, and, and he was an English teacher for about a decade before coming to work with me at Wi-Fi and for the Firetime magazine. And one of the things that he's talked about is he was like, I was a really good teacher. I went to school for years. I did it for a decade, and I never had to question if what I was doing was right. And when you shift into a new space, he's like, all of a sudden, it's an unfamiliar feeling to have things that are bigger than me, like outside of my control. It's not that there are outside factors in teaching, but like when you're in your classroom, he's like, you know, you're, you're in control and you can set the tempo and do it. And like, this is the first time, like I've, I've had to second guess, like, am I doing this right? What am I supposed to do with my job? Um, after being such an expert for so long, like, have you had to deal with any of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it can feel very isolating sometimes because in the classroom, not only are you able to set the tone, and let's be fair, not everyone is able. I mean, it takes a real master to be able to work with a whole group of different personalities and different learning styles at different levels and to be able to not only connect with them as individuals, meaning like I respect you, I respect your journey here, and I want you to get there with me. But as a room to set the tone, uh, it's it's a hard thing to do, but you get feedback. You get instant feedback. There is no more instant feedback than, say, a high school student can provide you than, this is boring, I'm not connecting with this, I think you're wrong, you know, like anything like that. And and so you you learn to play off of that and you make 
decisions on the fly. You come in with a with a lesson plan, and your lesson plan is after a while, it's all in your head, right? Um, but you come in with a lesson plan, and it's like, well, here's my plan A, and here's my plan B when I roll through my forty minute plan in ten minutes. You know, so what am I going to do after that? And so it, it it requires that preparation. But based on feedback, you just pivot. Um, and and that's something that I think you, know, you hear marketers talk about a lot. That machine moves more slowly, but that skill of pivoting when something isn't going well, knowing yeah. how to read the signs that something isn't going well. So that's what I mean when I say a lot of that stuff is similar. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like that Eisenhower quote that says, plans mean nothing, but planning is everything. I, I really resonate with that. Well, okay. So, so you made a shift from teaching to being a sales and marketing director. Talk about like how on earth did being a teacher for over a decade prepare you to be a sales and marketing director? So it happened in stages. I'll give you a sense of the full journey as as quickly as I can. But I knew that I was literate. I knew that I was a good writer. I knew that I understood, you know, everything I was just talking about. I knew I understood persona, um, Mm. understood psychology and, you know, why people make decisions that they make. And I just spent 12 years studying essentially case studies of like why people make decisions and why people do things and all of that. My dad had um, his own advertising business. I'd always been adjacent of that. So I knew that if I was going to do something else, there was probably a path for me in advertising, marketing, things like that. Um, My dad was an English teacher too, and he shared that kind of love with me. So I took a job uh, writing copy. For my, my last year of teaching, I basically worked, you know, 90 hours a week or however many hours there are in a week doing work. You know, I knew that if I wanted a job, I was going to need something to show for it. So I took a bunch of freelance gigs and I was writing copy for, you know, early on for people who were selling stuff on Amazon, you know, selling like homemade candles on Amazon. I'm like, okay, sure. I'll write your copy for you and let me figure that out. And then it was writing copy for a business that does, um, that, that, you know, catalyzes the RFP process. And then another one that does, um, you know, a private school, you know, all all of that stuff. And so I'm taking all these assignments, building up my portfolio. I made a connection with a company called Miles Technologies, which was back home around Philadelphia, where I'm from. And I I wasn't ready to leave teaching yet, wanted to finish out my year, but I got in touch with them and said, look, you know, if you have an opening around when I'm available, let me know. I spent the year just kind of networking with them and getting to know them as a company. I really liked their their deal as a company. They seemed like they cared a lot about their employees and employee growth and things like that. That appealed to me as a person starting in marketing, not in my 20s. Uh, and so I, I took a, a job there when I moved back. So I was writing copy for clients. You know, the, co- the company has a kind of in-house marketing wing that they work with different clients. So it's writing copy for them. So I did that for about three months. And in that three months, there was a a job opening for a a product that we had. It wasn't called Striven at the time, but it was Striven. And they were were going to... send this product out to market. They'd been using it on their own, you know, for, for their own company, but we had no real customer base. We had no marketing collateral, no real sales. We had, I think, one salesperson who was just calling random people. And, you know, there's not a lot of strategy yet, but a product that was, I wouldn't say fully baked, but 
pretty well-baked and pretty well-functional, right? So I applied for this position three months in to be a marketing manager. And the assignment was, here's this thing. We're not quite sure who it's for. We know it works well for us. Figure out who it's for and start building the marketing collateral, such as it could be, um, build the marketing channels, right? Here's a little budget, figure out where to spend it. If it works, then you have more and do something with that, right? So that was my first year or two in the role. Um, and I did it more or less by myself. Um, I worked with our kind of in-house marketing team who had already built a website, but I mean, there wasn't much. Everything needed to be overhauled and updated and everything like that. So that was my first working kind of solo to to build up, you know, what is this product? How are we going to brand it? All of that stuff. Um, I worked with our CEO on on you know, figuring out where to spend, what to pay attention to, and it worked. Uh, and uh, we started growing. We started you know, getting real leads coming in where we had zero before. We started having great customer conversations. Uh, we got beat up a lot yeah. uh, because this is our first time, right? Taking it to market. And we started making sales. And, and at the time, there was a, a sales manager. He decided to move over into customer success. And sales is something that the, the kind of tenets of sales is something that I've always loved. And being on the marketing side, I figured, well, who better to align sales and marketing than if it comes from the same person? That's right. So I started leading that division um, and I've been doing that for over a year now. And here we are. So uh, that that's kind of short path to where this is. Yeah, dude. Okay. So I'm taking notes as you talk because there's like three things I want to go back and ask you about. Okay. The first thing, this has nothing to do with your journey, but when you brought it up, I got to take the bait. You talked about writing sales copy and literally I'm looking at my bookshelf now and I'm looking at three different books on my shelf of how to write sales copy. I believe that the ability to write sales copy is such a valuable skill set. I mean, I feel like if you are a professional and you are able to write and impact someone to make a decision with your writing, that skill is invaluable and I never see it in our industry. Maybe I see it a little bit, I, but very, very rarely. It's, it's very, very rare that someone is thoughtful with how they're writing and, and, and how, how they want to impart wisdom to bring the person reading it to the point of a decision. Like, Why is writing copy such a valuable skill? Well, I mean, I think you said it, that it's it's about communication and it's about persuasion. You know, it's certainly not about trickery or getting someone to believe something that isn't true, though I, I think we should admit that the people who uh, use, you know, we call that propaganda, that's right. right? There, it, it, that, that speaks to me, that speaks to the power of the thing, that it can be used for a lot of different purposes. People are looking for something to believe in. And people are also looking more internally at you know, ways to make themselves better. I think that is the, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, that's what we want to do. I mean, I have a bunch of records behind me. You know, your, your listeners can't see it, but you can. I have you know, hundreds and hundreds of vinyl records. I've been collecting them since I was like 13. I still buy them. I still listen to them. I still seek out stuff that's rare or just stuff that I really like. I mean, why? I, I have it all on Spotify. But these things say something about what I believe about myself fundamentally. Like, why do I 
fries vinyl over just like hearing something on my computer? Why does that matter to me? You know, uh, someone who loves music can also love Spotify and doesn't have to love vinyl. But what is it about me and my persona and and getting to the bottom of that great copy can speak to that can help people understand themselves and what it is that they're looking for and we use persuasion with a lowercase p because i I don't think we don't mean it maliciously but it it can help them figure out you know how how a, a thing you know a product or a service or anything out there relates to them and relates to that conception of their their selves that they have. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I'll just say for me as a customer, I love reading a good piece of sales copy when I am the target, the product solves my problem and I can clearly see how it makes my life better. Like it's it's actually a joy to read that. So, uh yeah, man, that's 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 awesome. For those of you listening, like find someone who can write good sales copy and it will transform everything like your marketing costs go down your effectiveness goes up like agreed and and i would go further than that is that you know i'm sure we're all going to talk a lot about ai and the ability for ai to just like write things quickly and i think as a i don't even want to say research tool i would definitely use lowercase r you know but the, the idea of can an ai write good sales copy i mean no um no. Not at, not in terms of a finished product, uh, not something that goes in your website or in your brochure or whatever, because of everything that we're talking about right now, because you can't understand what's in the hearts of people. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's what persuades them. You know, people like to think that they make logical decisions, but I think people justify emotional decisions with logic and great copy just hits them right in that place where it's about them personally. And AI can speak to a lot of things and can abstract really well to where something maybe sounds true, but it has to feel true. And that's what great copy does. Yeah. I mean, and I found, and again, this is paint with broad strokes and I'm sure AI is going to get better and better. What I found when I read stuff with AI, it's not that it's bad, but it's usually that it is vague And it's not minimalistic and direct where there's something about being able to have a laser beam versus a flashlight that can help move people. Okay. So I, man, I'm going so many different ways. So you talked about how people make decisions emotionally and justify it logically. I agree with that. Can you, I'm just putting on the spot here. Can you talk about how that relates to like logos, pathos, ethos with teaching? Yeah. And that was kind of the other thing I wanted to say about what, helped me find a pretty clear through line between what I was doing and what I'm doing now. And I taught rhetoric for, you know, for, for 10 years and that and writing copy, those things are related. So, I mean, I can, I can define those terms really quickly if you want to. Yeah. So there's this thing called the rhetorical triangle and and the three Greek terms are uh, dealing with how we are persuaded, you know, what, what, what different ways we can be persuaded. So logos is an appeal to intellect or logic, right? So if I want to help you help convince you that this thing is effective, I'm going to quote a stat to you, you know, and a case study, right? And I know we may talk about case studies later, but 
the most effective thing in a case study, if I'm reading three pages of something, is really the, and then it helped this company, you know, increase their sales by 50% or whatever. You know, I, I see that number and that appeals to me because I see an actionable thing that I can kind of sink my teeth in. And so I am definitely persuaded by that. Pathos is an appeal to emotion. And it's usually, you know, what I used to tell my students is that it's often the cheapest one, but it's also often the most effective one. It's the cheapest. What I mean by that is that it can be very easy to appeal to a person's um, sense of fear or guilt or hope or anything like that and use the wrong way again like it can be dangerous it's a powerful thing is is persuasion um but it's it is often how we make decisions you know i i don't think going back to this record collection behind me there's not a lot of logic to it necessarily if anything like i could look at it as an investment Uh, i could look at it negatively as like wow that really drains a lot from my bank account each month. And maybe that's like not a great reason to keep going, but it's all emotional. It's all about, you know, oh, I'm going to buy this record for my favorite band when I was 15, because I still actually really like it. That's an emotional decision. Um, And it, and it could be very effective. And then the, the trickiest one is ethos, which is an appeal to character. And it's, why am I the right person to be speaking with you, right? So you would have never had me on this show if I was, you know, maybe two months into my job as a marketer, because what do I, what do I know yet? And I'm sure five years, 10 years from now, I'm going to know so much more than I do, but you know, I have some experience in, in doing this thing. You know, I have experience writing copy. I have experience managing teams. And you're interested in, in talking to people on your show who have experience doing the thing that you want them to talk about. And that's ethos. That's you should listen to me because here are my bona fides, so to speak. And, And we use all of those things. Yeah, so you called it the rhetorical triangle. And is there a particular order that, that you believe in with that triangle? Depends on what you're writing, but I think you use all of those things and, and all of those things for a different purpose. So I just talked about a case study. Like yeah. I want my headline in the case study to be an appeal to logic. Like I want someone to look at a successful customer and see the kind of like bottom line of that success. A lot of what what I do is, you know, market to business owners, to executives, to decision makers. You know, they're, they're not always interested in, in feeling a thing. They want the proof that like, what is the objective proof that this thing has helped someone else? So I'm going to lead with that. But that's not to say that emotion isn't incredibly important because when I read that case study, I want to know that the frustration that this customer felt before they found our solution is similar to the frustration I feel, right? I need to see myself in that story for that story to be effective. And you have to kind of mix both. And which one do you use first? I'm not sure because it depends, but you definitely make sure that you have the strategies in there. And, And again, like we're talking about Greek terms. But these things have lasted for thousands of years for a reason because they all have practical applications. Yeah. And you don't have to know uh, you know, classical rhetoric to still understand you know, as a marketer that I better make sure I use these types of things in what makes a good case study. 
Yeah, that's so good. So you have this experience teaching rhetoric. You have this experience getting beat up in the classroom, adjusting on the fly, and, and coming back with something that's better. That's just the nature of, of teaching. But as you looked at Striven, I'm just imagining Striven, you know, three years ago or four years ago, whenever it was that you were jumping on, you've got this raw product that Miles Technology uses themselves, which as a, just as a side note, that is my favorite thing about Striven is that it is used as an ERP by the company who sells it. And I'm like, that's incredible. I don't think that's true with every product that, that they use it to run their own business. So that's, that's amazing. And that in itself is actually an appeal to ethos. I think like, why am I talking to you about this? Cause we actually use it right. That to me, I don't know to me that, that, that speaks to that a little bit, but how did you take this raw product and figure out, okay, who's it for? Where do I press into it? And it to, to where it is now where, where people are using Striven in our industry all over the country. Yeah, and I think that the challenging thing about it is that there isn't, even now, there isn't always an easy answer in that like this is one thing for one group of people. So the challenge is there is a lot of universality, right? So in the hearth industry, you look at the operations, right? What's what's needed to be done? You have customers, you perform services, you sell products, you need, have the need for you know, billing and invoicing, you need a great accounting system, you need to manage customers, um, you need to manage information and put information all in one place, right? And you're going to maybe do that differently in the hearth industry than you may do in, say, people who work on HVACs or people who, you know, uh, repair roofs or, you know, even people who run law firms or whatever. But if you boil it all down, you know, operations across businesses are strikingly similar. The terminology is different and the processes are often pretty different, but the needs still exists, you know, to run a business, you need certain things. And so you know, what I identified pretty early on is that we have a product that can speak, that can speak to that, you know, operationally, we can run a lot of different kinds of businesses. Some are maybe non-starters, but oh, I have the ability. So where do we go with this? And I think early on, it was a little bit like feeling around in the dark. Um, we are predominantly an IT company. So can we market to other IT companies? Well, sure. Yeah, we can, because we know it runs our company really well. Uh, you run into stuff. It's not always that easy because you find out that the IT company, you know, two streets down, their processes are completely different than what yours are. And when you built this thing to suit your processes, well, all of a sudden, like that doesn't really make sense for them anymore. And, you know, unless they're willing to change or unless we're willing to shift something here or there. So, you know, finding that, you know, finding those targets was certainly challenging. I think a lot of it was, you know, getting leads early on from businesses and understanding how they do things and understanding what their needs are. Um, And as we get more and more eyes on this product, listening, 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 listening to their feedback, figuring out, can this be done? Yes. Okay. Well, now how can it be done to scale? Is that possible? And when you get really fortunate, because there's always a little bit of luck involved, um, you find people who, and, and this is pretty 
common and I mean, it's universal in a, in, a, in a product life cycle, but you find your early adopters, right? The people who understand the vision and whose vision aligns with yours and say, I see what you guys are doing here and I want to be a part of this thing. And I have the acumen to get to it and understand it. Um, and I'm going to use this and I'm going to, um, and I'm going to help you bring this out. Um, and we were fortunate to have had that experience a couple times over with our early adopters who shared in our vision and had the wherewithal to bring us out, um, into markets that we would have not known how to get into ourselves. Yeah, that's such a good word. And it, and it makes me think like, for a hearth retailer who's listening to this, who are your early adopters or who are your champions, right? Who is the designer that just loves coming into the store and talking with your team and they bring all their clients in, or who's that one remodeler that does that? Like they need to be the people that you start to push your marketing efforts into and through because it kind of goes back to what you're saying. Like when you've got, when you've got a, a champion of your product or when you have like Jim Collins calls it who luck, like when you, when you have someone just by pure happenstance that, that crosses your path, that, that sees it, that's that early adopter and that believes in it, you can't just let them go and just think to yourself, oh man, that's great that that designer always buys stuff from us. Like, no, you got to go all in on that because that's where opportunity is when you find those people that you're aligned with. We'll get back to our conversation with Scott Hammer in just one second. Hey, if you have been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you've probably heard about us talking about the Firetime magazine. Well, over the last few years, as the podcast community has grown larger and larger, we wanted to be able to open up a place where multiple voices could be heard from all over North America, and that is the Firetime Magazine. So, this is a digital magazine that comes out once a month, and seriously, we have articles that are written by everybody in our industry, from high-level executives to installers to CSRs to salespeople. We have a myriad of voices that contributes to this, and the content is absolutely phenomenal. Now, there's a few ways to get it. You can download the Firetime Magazine app on your phone and download every new issue that comes out totally for free. You can also jump onto our email list by going to itsfiretime.com slash subscribe and we will email you every time a new issue comes out. But you can also subscribe to the Firetime Magazine podcast. Virtually every article that we put out each month comes out as an audio article. And for me, being on the go, I love listening to these. I seriously listen to it every single month and the content is out of this world. So if you've enjoyed the Firetime podcast, you need to check out the Firetime magazine as well. Well, so I mean, we, we connected because of, of Dave Rettinger. So I met Dave about a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah, I think about a year and a half ago at the National Trade Show in Atlanta. And, and he introduced us shortly after. But Dave coming on as the champion for Striven, I feel like it, it does two things. One, um, he benefits because of the close proximity to you guys, but you guys benefit because now he's a case study and he is, you know, like one of the people that's, that's speaking about what you guys offer. And I guess I'm curious your thoughts about why it is so important to 
to find somebody like that. Like, and, and, and I guess like, like what the power of the case study is. I'm just thinking I don't see it as a marketing technique for many distributors or manufacturers to do a case study. Like, and I get that like they want to be sensitive with, you know, personal information of their customers, but I, I like just because you want to be sensitive with that doesn't mean you shouldn't do case studies. It's so powerful. Yeah, I agree. And we we had that issue at first. I think the first couple case studies that we wrote, we didn't publish any business names or anything for, for that reason, for sensitivity. And the more I thought about it, it was like, I don't really know why we're doing this because a, a case study, we don't really call them case studies. We call them success stories because that's what it is. It's about uh, the person we're working with being successful with our software and it's about us being successful with the person we're working with. And I think it's just, you know, it is a, it's not a story of failure. It never is. And so because it's a story of success, you know, why not, you know, put that out there? Dave is amazing. Um, Dave definitely changed the course of what I thought was possible, uh, with this product because of his, um, passion, his enthusiasm. And, and I'll say something about Dave, which I'll, uh, I'll apply to all product champions, to people who are coming into your world, who seem like they have that clout. And they have to have a couple things. The first, in, in our case, is they have to understand software. You know, They can't be first-timers with software. They have to have the, the, the technical expertise to know their way around something and to be able to solve a, a challenge that's presented to them without always reaching out. You know, Dave reaches out to us a lot, but there's so much that he can do. Um, and the second is uh, they have to have vision. Right. They have to Dave, Dave when Dave came to, to me, he was like, look, here's where we can go with this. Like, let me present to you this opportunity, which I love because I find myself doing that all the time to other people. I'm like, look, here's the thing. Like, do you see it? You know, and and then that was that was him. Um, and and then you know, you you have to be willing to see it through and understand that there will be challenges and bumps along the way. But you know, once you get over that. Uh, that kind of feeling of frustration or disappointment because like this vision doesn't fit exactly what I thought it was going to be, you will see that success. So uh, that's Dave and that's a great product champion. So when you have a, a success story, uh, a case study, you know, whatever you want to call it, you have to do it because th this is how you prove, right? It's how you prove that the service you're offering, the product you're offering, it improves people's lives, right? We went back to that 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 thing in the beginning of this conversation. Like, this exists to help people, to make them better. And if it doesn't do that, then what are you doing? And so when you can reflect that and show that to other people, and we could talk all day in our marketing copy or whatever, and we could use superlatives and say that it's the best or top rated because, you know, we won an award one time or something like that. But but the thing that can speak most loudly and the thing that is just undeniable is, wow, your product or service improved this person's life. There it is. That's, that's, that's all it is. Yeah, man, I, I, I so agree. You know, I think what I'm taking away as you're talking is so much of this is right in front of you. In your guy's case, you've got Dave using the software already. And, you know, it would have been easy maybe to say, well, we have our own vision. Thanks. Like, but you're a good customer. We appreciate you. But that would have been ignoring what was right in front of you. And I think that for many retailers and honestly, manufacturers and distributors as well, like 
how many champions do you have that use your company, your products and your services that love you and would be honored to actually be a part of casting that vision forward for other people. Like there are people who are product evangelists and and they are actually excited to evangelize the product, but often because of either fear of asking too much from them or arrogance to think that we know it best and we don't want to cede that control to somebody else that could, you know, maybe say a wrong thing about our product. I think that in our industry companies are they just they ignore this to their detriment, but Again, like I was actually on a call um, yesterday with with a manufacturer and I was kind of taking them through some of their product line. And I was like, man, like you've got these particular models of fireplaces that literally no one else in the entire market has. No one else has these. And these solve a major problem. And this company had no idea. Like their sales reps haven't haven't thought about it. Um, They're not listening to dealers that have talked about this, but yet it's been in front of them the whole time. And I think that like when it comes to marketing effectiveness, I think that so much of it is, is right in front of us just waiting to be tapped into. I agree. And I think it goes beyond that too, in the sense that that practice of tapping into your customer base and tapping into your relationships, those people you see at trade shows or the people you connect with, you know, online or whatever it is, it's an opportunity for you to assess the health of your customers. Who's happy, right? How are they doing, right? For us, that is a necessary practice because when we put people on Shriven, we want them on for life because if they're on for life, then it means they're growing and they're improving and they're doing everything like that. But we don't want to just get them on and say, all right, sounds good. We're just going to wipe our hands to that. We assume you're going to be like fine forever. And maybe in 10 years, our paths will cross again, right? It's it's not that at all. It's how are they doing? Are they happy? How can we improve the way they use this thing? And when I do case studies, I'll just be completely honest. There's not a single business owner that I've done a case study with who hasn't also said to me, and by the way, like I do have a couple ideas for your product. Like, you know, yeah. everybody will, you know, they're, they're, it's fine. It's good. I listen to them and I say that that totally makes sense. And, and we take things and then we talk about it as a, as a team because we care what our customers think. But in the same breath, they will sing the praises of what we've been able to do for them. I couldn't have said it better. It's right in front of you. You just have to yeah. be willing to see it. Yeah. Okay. So we've gone a lot of different directions. I want to, I want to pull this thing together. We, we talked a little bit about the hero's journey when me and you and Dave were grabbing drinks in New Jersey a few weeks ago. And this has really affected me and um, a lot of the marketing philosophy and even sales philosophy that I have comes from this idea of the hero's journey. And dude, you took me through the odyssey. I mean, you were taking me deep down this, but can you talk about the hero's journey conceptually and just like how that affects the way that we think and the way that we buy things and the way that we market and are marketed to? Yeah. Um, and I'll try not to reference the odyssey because I will not be able to stop. And, <laughs> um, you won't come out of that route. Yeah, yeah. I can't do that route. That's like, that was like an 11 PM conversation. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a different one. Anyway, the, the concept of the hero's journey in marketing and sales is that, you know, you pro- provider of product or service are not the hero. You know, your, your product and service is not the hero. Your customer is the hero. And taking it back to, again, the beginning of this conversation, your customer is the hero that 
want to embark on a journey because they want to improve something about their life or investigate something about their life or 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 do anything and think of any heroes in in stories you know and and the hero's journey is is classically a study of different literary heroes but like sometimes it's internally motivated and sometimes it's externally motivated you know like harry potter one day discovers that, oh, you're actually a wizard. And here now you have to go to this place, right? You have to embark on this journey to learn how to do this. Uh, but each person, right? Each person will encounter a, a time where they say uh, it was a day like any other, except it's not, right? And on that day is when you are going to uh, realize that you uh, have a need, you know, and you are the hero of that journey. The product or service is the guide, right? They are the ones guiding you through that because you say, I have a need. I want this thing. Maybe I'm not totally sure what that thing looks like. And maybe I'm not totally sure how to get it. But I think I have an idea about like how to start that process. So I want a new fireplace, right? Um, well, I know that I can do a little bit of research, you know, and I can look something up, but ultimately I'm going to need a guide in that. I don't know what I'm doing. My wife doesn't even want me to have a fire in the fireplace for fear of burning the house down. And maybe she's, maybe she's right um, because I, I shouldn't be trusted with that. But I want a fireplace. I need a guide to guide me through this. Now, what am I trying to become? You know, I'm trying to become a better version of myself or improve my life in some way uh, because, wow, I can imagine like the logs crackling on the fireplace in December and January. And that is just like, that fulfills this vision of myself. What am I doing? I'm reading a book, having a cup of tea, drinking a glass of wine. I'm doing the thing. Like that is a version of myself that I want. Need a guide to get there. So the hero's journey is all about, from the guide's perspective, the product or service. How do I maintain that the hero gets to be the hero of the journey? It's their story. It's not the story about the fireplace or the, you know, the modular situation we're going to build or the customs thing we're going to build or the knowledge that we have. It's about helping them on their journey to achieve the thing. And like any journey, it's fraught with challenges. There are going to be times when the hero uh, second guesses themselves, where they encounter challenges, right? Budget is a challenge. Specs are a challenge. Timeline is a challenge, right? All of those things are, are, are challenges that are presented you know, from the hero to the guide, and the guide helps to work them through that while helping them understand and even maybe articulate the vision for themselves. Like, what is the thing that you want so that I can guide you through all these potential perils and help you come out the other side with that vision that you wanted in the first place? Like, get me on the couch next to my fireplace, logs crackling, and here I am. Wow. But I could yeah. not have done this without the right guide. Yeah, that's Does so that good. Does that check out? Is that... Dude, 100%. 100%. I was wanting to jump in at so many points and just say yes and amen. Yeah, I mean, and, and most companies fundamentally, this is why this is why most companies, especially in our industry, their, their marketing is, is bad. It's not because the people that are making it are stupid or anything like that, but it's because they position themselves as the hero, not the That's customer. Right. And when you shift to the guide and you say, how can I empower the hero 
to accomplish on their journey what they're trying to accomplish, that's when we start to, to win. And the thing with the guide too, the guide has been there before. The guide has said, hey, I've been there. I know where the landmines are. Let me show you the way so that then you can fully step into what you were meant to step into. And, and it's it's about at the base of it all, you know, what is hearth about? It's about comfort. It's about family. It's it's always been about that. You know, it's what is you know, to understand a fireplace, you have to understand fire. And I mean, you, you have to understand heat and warmth and and what that does. Um, and that's not the only reason because there are plenty of aesthetic reasons and there's so much, but like that's to your point is what does your customer want? What do they want to feel? Who do they want to be? And when you can access that, you can write great copy, you can make great sales because you have an understanding of who your heroes are and how to guide them to achieve you know, success along that journey. That's so good. So good. Okay. I got, I got two things to close this out. Here's the first one. This goes back to the hero's journey. I want the name of the punk band that started you on the hero's journey in one aspect of your life. And I want one sentence about when that was and what it was like. It was definitely the clash. First time I heard a, a clash record, I said, this isn't punk. And that changed everything for me because then I understood what punk actually was and that what is the larger ethos, the character of punk, because it challenged my assumption of what this genre was in a way that actually gave me the, the great definition of the genre. That's amazing. For me, it was the matches. I was 16 years old. By accident, I ended up going up to Portland to go see them and I saw this I saw this punk show I was 16 their guitar player was 16 he dropped out of high school to go tour with this band and uh and that show changed my life I watched that show and said I'm gonna do this the rest of my life it's funny how you have those moments right that start that start you on on your own hero's journey okay here's the final thing uh you guys do amazing work with Striven I mean we just built an integration with Wi-Fi for it and I'm just seeing in, in my role of kind of traveling and stuff I'm seeing more and more people just jump onto Striven um, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced like it's it's going to be like the solution for our industry for the, the coming decade, probably for, for someone that's interested in Striven, where can they find out more information about it? And I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, is there anything special that you can do for podcast listeners? Yeah. Um, so and I, I didn't ask him about that, by the way. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Easy. First one is an easy answer. Striven.com, baby. Um, S-T-R-I-V-E-N.com. Um, you, you can check us out. And and Striven, we specialize in a few industries, but it's easy to navigate by industry and, and find hearth. And then in terms of what special thing you can do for podcast listeners, I mean, I think it's, it's really another way of saying, like, what can we do for the industry, which is talk to us. And mention that you came from this podcast and we're going to take care of you. Um, we're going to take, we will not leave you out of your journey. We're going to guide you along. Your case is going to be different than the next person who calls us within the hearth industry. I and mean, we, we've seen that there's universality, but there's specificity and no one is going to listen to you better than we are. That's at least the, the kind of soft promise I can make. Uh, I make more you know, harder you know, better promises down the line. But for now, I mean, that's, that's what my hope is. 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. This is such a good conversation, and I am so impressed with what I've seen Striven do, like literally from the time that I saw it, and I'm really pumped to see what you guys continue to do with it. So thanks for being here, Scott. Yeah, Tim, I appreciate it. And I'll say, you know, with, with Wi-Fi or two, I mean, when we saw that, we were like, oh, okay. Yeah, now I now I get what this is going to be. So, I mean, it's incredible work that you've done. If, if we grew up in the same state, we would have known each other already. And that's a good thing. So I love, love talking to you and I love what you're doing. Thanks, man. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Scott Hammer. Man, there is so much there. And again, like, the way that he is thinking about sales, marketing, persuasion, and rhetoric is is really deep. And, and many companies do not have a grasp on this. Like he's literally thinking about the ancient Greeks and that combination of logos, ethos, and pathos. And the idea of how do we convince somebody about our point of view? Well, we need to decide when to tap into each part of that. And I I think that there's a lot of gold there. You know, when we were talking about marketing and this idea that oftentimes what we need from a marketing perspective is right in front of us, I, I believe in this so much. I mean, there, there are so many companies out there that are, are trying to sell smoke and mirrors for things that are so far outside of the control of business owners' lives that I'm not saying that stuff is bad necessarily, but what we should be focusing on is what's right in front of us. We should be focusing on, you know, who is that customer that's a really, really good customer that could become my brand champion if I pushed into that relationship more. If this one type of customer has had success, how could I build out a program that they could be an evangelist for that would attract more people like them and start to spread because of how effective it is and how much it can solve other people's problems. In my opinion, this is the kind of marketing that I I just love and I believe in. And I think everybody can do it, whether you're a manufacturer or distributor or a retailer, or even, you know, a software company like Striven or like Wi-Fi Oftentimes, what we're looking for is right in front of us. We don't have to try and go to find that magic customer or that mystical demographic or that, you know, batch of impressions that if we only had these things, then our business would have what it needs. And and, and I, I just don't think that that's the case. I think that oftentimes, marketing is about asking the question, what problem are we able to solve and who are we helping solve that problem right now and can we push into that relationship to help them solve more problems or to help more people like them solve the problems that they have. You know, it was funny when we were talking about writing sales copy, I I get so passionate about this. And there's a few books that I have on sales copy, as I mentioned in the conversation, that have been really helpful for me. And I would encourage you, I'm going to give you the name of a book. It's by Ray Edwards and it's called How to Write Copy That Sells. And I read this book about five years ago, no joke, when my wife was in the hospital with our second child being born. I had some downtime while we were in the recovery room for a few days. And and I read this book and, and with my wife's permission, this didn't take away from me, you know, being a present a present husband and father, but with my wife's permission, I just wrote 
sales copy for the better part of three days as we had downtime instead of watching Netflix in the hospital. And I think I wrote like 40 or 50 pages worth of, worth of sales copy. It was a bunch of email campaigns for some things I was doing at the time. But I think that when you can understand how to write and how to persuade with copy, something happens in the way that you understand communication and in the way that people respond to you. And truly, like I, I was I was literally uh, putting together a video for a manufacturer today in our industry, giving them some feedback on some products. And I and and on the website, I was on the product page and there was not a single piece of sales copy. And so I just pointed out like it'd be really, really helpful if you could have some sales copy here that it could explain. If I was a customer, how does this solve my problem? Why does it make my life better? What are the steps I need to take to turn this project into a reality? And and again, we often just hire somebody in marketing to to do ad buys and ad spends. And and in my opinion, that that's handicapping the potential of a marketing person that like, you know, they can be leading the charge to to be the communication driver for your company so that uh that people can understand the value that that you offer. So man, there was a lot there. And uh and like I said in the in the interview, I mean I I, I believe in Striven. Everything I've seen of it is is phenomenal. And uh and you know with Wi-Fi we literally built an integration with it because we felt like man this is the software system we think in the coming years that's going to really impact our industry so we want to make sure that our system can work with it man and 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 the hero's journey as well as i'm as i'm thinking about this you know that that bit about the hero's journey at the end don't miss what he's talking about there when when you position your business as the guide and not the hero man it draws customers to you like like nothing else. And once once you've made that switch, you start to see everything through that lens. Like anytime I'm looking at a piece of marketing or literature or advertising, I'm always thinking, who's the hero of this story? Because if it's the business, it's not going to be that effective. But if the hero is the customer and it's done in an authentic way that makes the customer feel valued and important, like my goodness, watch out because it's, it's really, really powerful. So I hope you guys got a ton of value out of that conversation. It was an absolute joy for me. Well, Hey, if this podcast was a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P A T R E O N.com slash it's fire time. And we are so thankful for those of you that, that do support this podcast on a monthly basis. It, it, it literally means the world and it, it's the reason that we can continue to exist and try to produce relevant content. And for those of you that are not able to contribute, that's totally fine. I mean, the fact that you're here and enjoying and sharing the content, that that means a lot as well. So thank you guys for supporting this. Now, you know, I, I know that we are in the heart of the season and, and it's so easy to think like, come on, you're talking about Greek words and the rhetorical triangle. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep up with all the customers that are coming in my door. Man, I, I, I'm telling you, like, if you can carve out just a little bit of time to think, how can we make the shift from making our business the hero to making the customer the hero? I guarantee 
that that things will be better for you even in the midst of the craziness. So stay strong. The work that you're doing really, really matters. And and I hope that that this episode has been a blessing for you. So with that said, I'm going to sign off. We'll talk again next week. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. I'm all into burn, yeah.